Broadcasting live from the middle of America, welcome to the Oklahoma City Real Estate Show. Covering local market data, news, and reports to arm you with information you need to empower your investing and strengthen your American rights. Top Realtor, investor, father, and veteran. Here is your host, Landon Witt. For more information and to listen or watch online, visit OKCRealEstateShow.com. Welcome to episode 97 of the Oklahoma City Real Estate Show. On today's show, Jerome Powell, the executive chair and director of the Federal Reserve, is no, not on the show today, but he his interview is going to be on the show today. And here's why. Because in May, March 17th, which I missed the full 60-minute interview that almost no media outlet will put the whole show on there, but he says some very important things that I think are going to clarify exactly the position of the economy for the future, okay? And, and the reason why I'm bringing this up is because there's a lot of information on YouTube, a lot of information on Facebook about differing people's opinions of where the economy may be going in the future. This also can help confuse, right? Your opinion of, should I buy a house now? Should I not buy a house? Should I refinance now? Should I not refinance? Should I change jobs? Should I not? And so on and so forth. So it's a big question. And one of the things I want to point out is that anytime you see information that is drastically different than what the rhetoric is, I want you to ask, what is the data? Where is the data? What is the data? Let's look at the data for it and and then make our conclusions, okay? So real quick, before we get into Jerome Powell, okay, I want to look at the charts for Oklahoma City, okay? This is a site that I've shared many times, InfoSparks. And for those listening on the radio, I will, I will call these out, the numbers. Um, so as we go, um, I'm showing this. Uh, this is the median sales price chart from 2008 all the way to 2021. And this is the price increase, right? And this increase here on from 2020 on, yes, has increased more than it has been since 2018. Really 2019, we started adjusting higher, but it's still, if we, we look just, you know, zoom out at the whole picture, I want you to see that the, the Midwest has been growing gradually, carefully protected for a while, okay? And now this type of pattern where we're going up and then peaking and then potentially coming back, I want you to be aware of that as we're going into the summer. This is the summer right here. And then the peaks, okay, that's the peak of the trough over the summer. And then we do make a gradual decline in median sales price over the winter. And that's largely due to not a whole lot of people who, who can control their future in life and really, you know, are fortunate enough to be in a situation where they decide when they want to move. They don't want to move in the middle of winter. Why are you wanting to pack boxes and brush snow off your furniture as, as they're loading it into the trucks? Not an ideal situation over winter. So that uh, all of this is just to say, this is nothing crazy new. It's been this way for a long while. 
you're just having, uh, you know, when we look at the month's supply of inventory, right, the actual, or the actual homes for sale is even more dramatic. Look at this. We're looking at a, a claw, uh, just a dive of amount of homes for sale, okay? That's probably your biggest impact is just sellers not wanting to sell you know they're not you know they're they're happy with their home choice and they've refinanced or they don't want to upgrade yet until they kind of figure out what's going on so that's where we go to our next guest here jerome is the federal chairman of the federal reserve okay he's the top dog he's generally responsible for what the stock market does directly after these press briefings they listen to every little keyword and they try to make all these changes and most importantly they just try to create drama which creates a, a profitable day trade for them on these days so let's get him rolling on here i'll make some comments as we go along but very smart gentlemen i think will enjoy it like a start today. by noting that it has been a full year since the pandemic arrived with force on our shores. Looking back, it was clear that addressing a fast-moving global pandemic would be plainly and fast-moving global pandemic would be plainly and primarily the realm of healthcare providers and experts. And we are grateful to them and to all the essential workers for their service and sacrifice. The danger to the US economy was also clear. Congress provided by far the fastest and largest response to any post-war economic downturn, offering fiscal support for households, businesses, health care providers, and state and local governments. Here at the Federal Reserve, we rapidly deployed our full range of tools to provide relief and stability, to ensure that the recovery will be as strong as possible, and to limit lasting damage to the economy. We are strongly committed to achieving the monetary policy goals that Congress has given us, maximum employment and price stability. <clears throat> the economic fallout has been real and widespread, but with the benefit of perspective, we can say that some of the very worst economic outcomes have been avoided by swift and forceful action from Congress, from across government, and in cities and towns across the country. More people held on to their jobs, more businesses kept their doors open, and more incomes were saved as a result of these swift and forceful policy actions. And while we welcome these positive developments, no one should be complacent. At the Fed, we will continue to provide the economy the support that it needs for as long as it takes. <clears throat> Today, the FOMC kept interest rates near zero and maintained our sizable asset purchases. These measures, along with our strong guidance on interest rates and on our balance sheet, will ensure that monetary policy will continue to deliver powerful support to the economy until the recovery is complete. The path of the economy continues to depend significantly on the course of the virus and the measures undertaken to control its spread. Since January, the number of new cases, hospitalizations, and deaths has fallen, and ongoing vaccinations offer hope for a return to more normal conditions later this year. In the meantime, Continued observance of social distancing measures and wearing masks will help us reach that goal as soon as possible. The economic recovery remains uneven and far from complete, and the path ahead remains uncertain. Following the moderation in the pace of the recovery that began toward the end of last year, indicators of economic activity and employment have turned up recently, although the sectors of the economy most adversely affected by the resurgence of the virus and by greater social distancing remain weak. 
Household spending on goods has risen notably so far this year. In contrast, household spending on services remains low, especially in services that typically require people to gather closely, including travel and hospitality. The housing sector has more than fully recovered from the downturn, while business investment and manufacturing production have also picked up. The overall recovery in economic activity since last spring is due, importantly, to unprecedented fiscal and monetary policy actions, which have provided essential support to households, businesses, and communities. The recovery has progressed more quickly than generally expected, and forecasts from FOMC participants for economic growth this year have been revised up notably since our December Summary of Economic Projections. In commenting on the stronger outlook, participants noted progress on vaccinations as well as recent fiscal policy. As with overall economic activity, conditions in the labor market have turned up recently. Employment rose by 379,000 in February as the leisure and hospitality sector recouped about two-thirds of the jobs that were lost in December and January. <clears throat> Nonetheless, employment in this sector is more than 3 million below its level at the onset of the pandemic. For the economy as a whole, employment is 9.5 million below its pre-pandemic level. The unemployment rate remains elevated at 6.2% in February. This figure understates the shortfall in employment, particularly as participation in the labor market remains notably below pre-pandemic levels. Looking ahead, FOMC participants project the unemployment rate to continue to decline. The median projection is 4.5% at the end of this year and moves down to 3.5% by the end of 2023. The economic downturn has not fallen equally on all Americans, and those least able to shoulder the burden have been the hardest hit. In particular, the high level of joblessness has been especially severe for lower-wage workers in the service sector and for African Americans and Hispanics. The economic dislocation has upended many lives and created great uncertainty about the future. Overall inflation remains below our 2% longer-run objective. Over the next few months, 12-month measures of inflation will move up as the very low readings from March and April of last year fall out of the calculation. Beyond these base effects, we could also see upward pressure on prices if spending rebounds quickly as the economy continues to reopen particularly if supply belt bottlenecks limit how quickly production can respond in the near term. However, these one-time increases in prices are likely to have only transient effects on inflation. The median inflation projection of FOMC participants is 2.4% this year and declines to 2% next year before moving back up by the end of 2023. The Fed's response to this crisis has been guided by our mandate to promote maximum employment and stable prices for the American people, along with our responsibilities to promote the, financial, the stability of the financial system. As we say in our statement on longer-run goals and monetary policy strategy, we view maximum employment as a broad-based and inclusive goal. Our ability to achieve maximum employment in the years ahead depends importantly on having longer-term inflation expectations well anchored at 2%. As the committee reiterated in today's policy statement, with inflation running persistently below 2%, we will aim to achieve inflation moderately above 2% for some time, so that inflation averages 2% over time. Heard. All right. The world is not exploding because of inflation. He's telling you clearly. 
the math geniuses, okay, that are hired to do this job, and they are some of the best in the world. They have access to situations and data we just can't even fathom, but the target is 2%. We've been well under 2% of inflation for too long, so they have to market correct the inflation above 2% to average then coming back down to 2%. So when you feel inflation is on the rise and printing money is on the rise, yes, that's what they told you they would do. It's it's planned, it's carefully projected. And not to mention people like Jeff Bezos and 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 uh you know Bill Gates and and these people that have you know billions of dollars that they're holding in their company are in their you know bank accounts basically. Uh, that's not circulating. They nobody predicted billionaires. I mean, and trillionaires coming in the future. Like, you have to have money circulating. So, because they're holding it, like, you got to print some more, man. Nobody thought there would be trillionaires. And longer-term inflation expectations remain well anchored at two percent. We expectations remain well anchored at two percent. We expect to maintain an accommodative stance of monetary policy until these employment and inflation outcomes are achieved. With regard to interest rates, we continue to expect it will be appropriate to maintain the current 0 to 1 quarter percent target range for the federal funds rate until labor market conditions have reached levels consistent with the committee's assessment of maximum employment and inflation has risen to 2 percent and is on track to moderately exceed 2 percent for some time. I would note that a transitory rise in inflation above 2%, as seems likely to occur this year, would not meet this standard. In addition, we will continue to increase our holdings of Treasury securities by at least $80 billion per month and of agency mortgage-backed securities by at least $40 billion per month until some backed securities. Okay, that is the Fed committing to buying the loans from the local banks so that they can feel confident accepting more loan applications okay that right there very key to playing out our summer and allowing those local banks to feel confident okay substantial further progress has been made toward our maximum employment and price stability goals it's been made toward our maximum employment and price stability goals the increase in our balance sheet since last march has materially eased financial conditions and is providing substantial support to the economy the economy is a long way from our employment and inflation goals, and it is likely to take some time for substantial further progress to be achieved. Our forward guidance for the federal funds rate, along with our balance sheet guidance, will ensure that the stance of monetary policy remains highly accommodative as the recovery progresses. Our guidance is outcome-based and ties the path of the federal funds rate and the balance sheet to progress toward reaching our employment and inflation goals. Overall, our interest rate and balance sheet tools are providing powerful support to the economy and will continue to do so. To conclude, we understand that our actions affect communities, families, and businesses across the country. Everything we do is in service to our public mission. We are committed to using our full range of tools to support the economy and to help assure that the recovery from this difficult period will be as robust as possible. Thank you. I look forward to your questions.
pick your kids up from school or whatever you're doing. Uh, thank you for listening. OKCRealEstateShow.com. You can get a hold of me. Um, I also launched my own brokerage in January of this year. That's OKCReal.com. You can check me out there if you're looking to buy a residential home. If you're looking, uh, if you're looking to do investment homes, that's OKCRealEstateShow.com. Okay, so for those that are sticking around for the question, these dudes are all the media and they're going to ask questions. And I want you to be careful. Um, media asks questions in a way to, to sell articles, right? They're going to ask headline, find a stab for like these sound bites and all this stuff and to create intensity, okay? That's their whole job is to create articles that you want to click on and read on. So when you pull out all the drama that they're trying to create in their question and just get to the facts, you'll have a lot healthier view of, of what's going on. So just know that going into that, that these questions from these people, you know, they're going to be trying to create drama. Thank you. I look forward to your questions. Possible. Thank you. I look forward to your questions. Howard from Reuters. Oh, hi, Chair Powell, and, and thanks for that. So um, could you talk us through how the um, the forecast for 2021 map into the substantial further progress definition, uh, you know, 2.4% inflation, I understand that's considered transitory. That still seems like some progress there, 4.5% unemployment. Uh, is it time to start talking about talking about uh, tapering yet? <laughs> Not yet. Um, so uh, as, as you pointed out, uh, we've said that we would um, continue asset purchases at this pace uh, until we see substantial further progress. And that's actual progress, not forecast progress. So, and that's a difference from, from our past approach. So, and what we mean by that is, is pretty straightforward. It is we'll want to see that, uh, that the labor markets have moved, labor market conditions have moved, you know, have made substantial progress toward maximum employment and inflation has made substantial progress toward uh, the 2% goal. That's what we're gonna wanna see. Now, that obviously includes an element of judgment. And when we see, we'll be, we'll be carefully looking ahead. We, we, we also understand that we, we will uh, want to provide as much advance notice of any potential taper as possible. So when we see that we're on track, when we see actual data coming in that suggests that we're on track, to perhaps achieve substantial further progress, then we'll say so. And we'll say so well in advance of any decision to actually taper. If I could follow up on that, this shift in the dots, why wouldn't that suggest a weakening of the commitment here? An awful lot of people shifted into 2022, it seems. I, I, I don't see that at all. You know, we, we have a, a range of perspectives uh, on the committee. I welcome that. And, uh, uh, you know, we, we, we have, we debate things, we discuss things, and we always come together around a, around a, a solution. But, uh, you know, the, the, the strong bulk of the committee uh, is, uh, is not showing a rate increase uh, during this forecast period. And, uh, you know, as, as data improve, as the outlook improves very significantly since the December meeting, you would expect forecasts to move up. It's probably not a surprise that some people would bring in their estimate of the appropriate time for liftoff. Nonetheless, uh, you know, the bulk of the committee, the, the, the largest part by far of the committee is, is, um, 
doesn't show a rate increase during this period. And again, part of that is wanting to see actual data uh, rather than just a forecast at this point. We do expect that um, we'll begin to make faster progress on uh, both spending and you know, labor markets and inflation as the year goes on because of the progress with the vaccines, because of uh, the fiscal support that we're getting. We expect that to happen, but you know, we'll have to see it first. Great, thank you. Victoria. Um, hi, Chair Powell. I wanted to ask about the supplementary leverage ratio. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about what you all are going to do this month, um, which I'm happy to hear an update if you have one, but uh, just sort of more broadly, do you think long-term that the leverage ratio poses problems for um, implementing monetary policy at a time when the reserve supply is going to remain large? And um, if so, do you think the changes to the leverage ratio, including the SLR, are the way to deal with that problem? Victoria, um, we'll have something to announce on that in coming days, and uh, I'm not going to expound upon your questions. Uh, why, don't you, why don't you ask another question if you'd like to, because, because that one I'm just going to say that we're something in coming days. Um, sure. Okay. Uh, well, then I'll ask about um, unemployment. You know, there's um, the unemployment rate is, uh, you all have projections for the U6 rate, but you've also been, you know, really uh, emphasizing the fact that that's not the only thing that you all are looking at. You're also looking at labor force participation and things like that. So are you all looking at ways of maybe uh, adding to how you're projecting the unemployment rate to the summary of economic projections? Well, let me say, as we say in our um, statement on longer-run goals and monetary policy strategy, we look to a range of indicators on labor market. We, we never only looked at, at uh, the unemployment rate, which is the only uh, indicator of, of labor market outcomes that's in the SEP. Uh, we look at a very broad range. You hear us talk all the time about participation, about employment to population, which is the combination of the two, about different measures of, of, of unemployment. So. Uh, it's wages, it's, uh, it's the job flows, it's, you know, all of those things are, they go into an assessment, disparities of various groups. The, all that goes into a, an assessment of maximum employment. The, the trying to incorporate all of that into the summary of economic projections would not be practical. Uh, you know, obviously the thing that we do include is just the unemployment rate, and that's a very insufficient statistic. Uh, so it, it doesn't include a lot of other things. That we, that we do look at. And um, I, I wouldn't want to say that we're looking to include the other dozen things that we look at into the SEP. But uh, at time, from time to time, we do look at, at, at adding different things. But uh, I, I would just say the SEP is a, it's a summary. It's one device. It's not going to include all of the things that we look at. I think you know the things that we look at. We, we talk about them all the time. Um, so we're not actually looking actively at significantly broadening those indicators in the SEP right now. Thank you. Chris Rugaber, Associated Press. Uh, thank you. Um, Chair Powell, I wanted to ask about the forecast overall. You're forecasting uh, a very low unemployment rate next year and in 2023. Uh, you have inflation or the Fed overall is in the SEP forecasting inflation at or above 2% uh, by 2023, uh, yet no rate hike in any of this, in any of this uh, forecast horizon. So is this telling us that you see a higher inflation rate than what's projected uh, or do you not? 
as you've been talking about, is the unemployment rate insufficient, or what is this telling us about the Fed's reaction function? That uh, it seems you're meeting the Fed's dual mandate by 20. Myself, but I get myself catch myself doing this too. But when they ramble on like that, they're they're trying, they're desperately grabbing for just any bit of anything, and it just that's not an actual fact question you're trying to ask. You're trying to get him to say a soundbite about interest rates could go up so that you could write an article about it. So this is just super educational for just anybody that's going forward and trying to just understand truth in the media. So yeah, no rate hike expect 23. Yeah, again, no rate hike expect. So I guess the first thing to say is that the, the SEP is not a committee forecast. It's, it's not something we sit around and debate and discuss and approve and say this represents our, you know, our uh, reaction function as a committee. It, it's a compilation of projections from different people. And I, it, it, but since we don't debate it or discuss it, it would be hard for me to say why, exactly why each participant uh, did what they were going to do. So the, all I would say about this is that um, We've laid out what I think is very clear guidance on liftoff, and it's really three things. Labor market conditions that are consistent with our estimates of maximum employment, and as I mentioned, we consider a wide range of indicators in assessing labor market conditions, not just the unemployment rate. Inflation that has reached 2% and not just on a transitory basis, and inflation that's on track to run moderately above 2% for some time. The first two of those three are very much database. The third does have a, a little bit of, a, of a, an element of uh, expectations in it. So we are very much determined to implement this guidance in a robust way. It is the guidance that we chose carefully to implement our new framework. Um, and to meet these standards, uh, we'll need to see data, as I mentioned. Um, so what this, what, what does this, this SEP really say? It says that we're committed to our framework and to the guidance we've provided to implement that framework. We will wait, uh, until the requirements set forth in that guidance are clearly met before considering a change in our policy rate. And the last thing I'll say is this. Um, the state of the economy in two or three years is highly uncertain, and I wouldn't want to focus too much on the exact timing of a potential rate increase that far into the future. Uh, so that's how I would think about the, the SEP. Thank you. Paul Kiernan. Thank you, Chairman Powell. Um, my question is twofold. Uh, one, um, how high are you comfortable letting inflation rise? There, there is some ambiguity in, in your new target, as you mentioned, um, expectations driven. Um, and, and do you think that that ambiguity might cause markets to price in a lower tolerance for inflation than the Fed actually has, thereby causing financial conditions to tighten prematurely? Is that a concern? Thanks. So we've said we'd like to see inflation run moderately above 2% for some time. And we've resisted basically generally the uh, temptation to try to quantify that. Part of that just is talking about inflation is one thing. Actually having inflation run above 2% is the real thing. So I... Uh, uh, we, you know, over the years, we've, we've talked about 2% inflation as a goal, but we haven't achieved it. So I, I would say we'd like to, you know, perform uh, 
That's what we'd really like to do is to get inflation moderately above 2%. I don't want to be too specific about what that means because I, I think it's hard to do that. And we haven't done it yet. You know, when we're actually above 2%, we can do that. I, um, I, look, I, I would say this. We are, the fundamental change in, in our framework is uh, that we, we're not going to act preemptively based on forecasts for the most part. Um, and we're going to wait to see actual data. And I think it will take people time to, to adjust to that and to adjust to that new practice. And the only way we can really build the credibility of that is by doing it. So that's how I would think about that. Thank you. Matthew Bosler. Hi, Chair Powell. This is Matthew Bosler with Bloomberg News. So there's a widespread presumption at this point that the U.S. will reach herd immunity sometime this year. Um, and all along, you've said that the path of the economy is going to be determined by the course of the virus. Um, I'm curious, based on the projections that you released today that show unemployment will still be above estimates of maximum employment through the end of next year and perhaps sometime into 2023. Uh, do you think policymakers need to be doing more here to sort of align the um, herd immunity and full employment timelines, if you will? Thank you. So on, on herd immunity, I, I'm really going to leave that question to the experts. Um, we don't control that. We're not responsible for defining it. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll leave that whole discussion to the experts. I mean, we're, what we're focused on is, um, is the part that we control, which is the support that we provide to the economy. And there we provided very clear guidance. Uh, and in the case of asset purchases, it's uh, uh, at their current level until we make substantial further progress. There is an element of judgment in that, and we'll, we'll, therefore we'll supply clear communication well in advance of, of actually tapering. And we just went through the you know, the, the criteria for raising interest rates, they're very specific. And, um, you know, we're, we're very much committed to having them fulfilled robustly. I, I would agree with you that the, the path of the virus continues to be very important. We, we have these, um, you know, new strains with which, which can be very, quite virulent. Uh, and we're not actually done yet. And I, I, um, we're, we're, we're clearly on a good path with, with uh, cases coming down, as I mentioned, but we're not done, and I'd hate to see us take our, our eye off the ball before we actually finish the job. Uh, so that's how I would look at that. If I could just briefly follow up, um, how do you see sort of the disconnect in terms of uh, an economy that is expected to be widely reopened this year, but uh, full employment taking uh, longer to achieve? Is it is it the case that um, you know, factors related to the virus will still be with us um, over the coming years? Is that how to interpret the forecast? I think there's some of that. Sure, sure, there'll be some of that. There'll still be some social distancing. People may be, for example, going into um, uh, spaces that, that, uh, uh, you know, that involve close contact with others. Some people will do that right away. Others will hold back. And so I think there'll, there'll be some of that. In addition, though, remember, there, there are 10 million people in the range of 10 million people who need to get back to work. And it's going to take some time for that to happen. You know, it can, it can happen maybe, maybe more quickly than it has in the past because it involves the reopening of a sector of the economy as opposed to stimulating aggregate demand and waiting for that to produce job demand for workers. This could be a different sort of a process, and it could be quicker. We don't know that. 
Um, but it's it's just a lot of people who have who need to get back to work, and it's not going to happen overnight. It would be, it's going to take some time. No matter how uh, well the economy performs, Le unemployment will take a, a, a quite a time to go to go down, and so will participation. So uh, th that's all I can say. I think it, it, the faster the better. We'd love to see it come sooner rather than later. We'd welcome nothing more than that. But realistically, given the numbers, it's going to take some time. Thank you, Steve Leisman. Mr. Chairman, thank you. Um, I wonder if you could, uh, kind of a three-parter here, uh, but all related. Um, would you comment on the current level of the 10-year yield and some other long rates out there, whether or not you think they would have a negative effect on the economy? And if not, is there a level that would give you concern? And finally, the third part, other central bankers have expressed concern about what's happened to yields in their countries, uh, and even some taken action, but not you. Could you give us your general uh, idea or orientation towards the idea of, of coming into the market and affecting a particular tenor of the bond market? Do you, do you like that idea? Do you not like it? Is it at the top of your toolbox or is it something that you think is at the bottom of the toolbox? Sure. sure. So we monitor a broad range of financial conditions and we're always attentive to market developments, of course. We're still a long way from our goals and it's important that financial conditions do remain accommodative to support the achievement of those goals. And if you look at various indexes of financial conditions, what you'll see is that they generally do show financial conditions overall to be highly accommodative, and that is appropriate. So that's, that's how we look at it. Um, I would add, I, as I've said, I would be concerned by disorderly conditions in markets or by a persistent tightening of financial conditions that threaten the achievement of our goals. Um, we think the stance of, our, of monetary policy remains appropriate. Uh, our guidance on the federal funds rate and on asset purchases is providing strong support for the economy. And we're committed to maintaining that patiently accommodative stance until the job is well and truly done. The answer to that question, <clears throat> word for word, um, I think the, the guy that asked the question is what CNBC and which is very much so affects the day traders and and stockholders that are that are playing around the market. Obviously, he asked a question about the bond market, very specific. And so, I think it's important that again that he's reading the answer to the question that he had that question that answer prepared in advance because he knows how emotional the stockholders are on every little word that he might say. They're all trying to barter and bid. So I think that just just this shows such maturity. I mean, the guy's a very interesting guy. I mean, he he's he he just he's he knew that that was going to be, and of course he does this, you know, all the time. I think this is a quarterly meeting, but um, yeah, it's just it's very funny how emotions and logic and actual data are oftentimes inversely related. So he has to be super careful. So. Could you give us an idea of how you sort of feel about that tool of being able to come into a particular part of the market and either operating doing an operation twist or something like that? Is that something you feel to be the top of your toolbox or something that you don't really prefer? You know, we, we, the, we, the tools we have are the tools we have. What I'm telling you is that the stance of monetary policy we have today, we believe is appropriate. We think that our asset purchases in their current form, which is to say, you know, across the curve, 80 billion in treasuries, 40 billion in mortgage-backed securities on net. We think that that's, that's the right place for our asset purchases. Now we can, we can change them of course in 
in a, a number of different dimensions, should we deem that that's appropriate. But for now, we, we think that our policy stance on that is appropriate. It's appropriate. But for now, we, we think that our policy stance on that is appropriate. Thank you. Rachel Siegel. Hi, Chair Powell. Thanks very much for taking my question. You've spoken about the pandemic's disproportionate toll on Black Americans, Hispanic Americans, Asian Americans, and other groups in the labor market. And I'm curious if you can speak to specific indicators that the Fed will be using to measure job gains for groups that have persistently higher rates of unemployment compared to white Americans. And relatedly, since you've described vaccines as key to the economic recovery, is the Fed concerned about lower vaccination rates in communities of color and what barriers do you think exist there? Thanks very much. So which measures? Uh, so we, we, we do uh, monitor and uh, communicate very regularly about different uh, labor market, disparities in the labor market, let's say. So the African-American unemployment rate is substantially elevated um, and so is the Hispanic unemployment rate. So we look at those and we see those as, you know, it's it's slack in the labor market. It's uh, it's sad to see because th those disparities had really come down fair to record lows since we started keeping the data that way uh, as recently as a year ago, February of last year. We had those those disparities quite low. What happens in a, in a downturn though is they move up at twice the speed of white unemployment. So we monitor those things. We, our tools, of course, affect unemployment generally, but we're going to look at those as, as a form of slack in the labor market and hope that, uh, you know, that there's progress there. And, and this particular downturn, of course, was just a direct hit on, uh, on a part of the economy that employs many minorities and lower-paid workers. The, the public-facing uh, workers in the service industries uh, in many cases, don't have a lot of financial assets. They're not ter tremendously well paid. Uh, they might have other jobs and things like that. So this was a, a direct hit on that part of the economy, and th it's the slowest part of the economy to recover. So, you know, we like to see those people continue to get supported, uh, you know, as we as the broader economy recovers, which it which is very much doing now. In terms of disparate levels of vaccination, that's um, those are facts, unfortunate facts. They're really not something we we have within our policy. Uh, toolkit to address, but it, it is it is true though that we, we the data we have suggests that there are, there are significant disparities between different ethnic groups and um, you know but that's that's not for us uh, that's for fiscal authorities and the government more generally to to work on. Thank you, Gina Smialik. Hey, Chair Powell, thanks for taking our questions. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you see the fiscal policy support that has come down the line affecting the economy's potential in the longer term, just in the sense that you've talked a lot about the potential for labor market scarring and how that might weigh on our sort of future prospects. And I wonder whether you see that sort of working in reverse, you know, if we pull people back into the labor market more quickly, does that improve our chances? So I do think that um, fiscal policy overall will have really helped us to avoid um, much of the scarring that we were very, very concerned about at the beginning. And I think that's just um, the size and the speed with which uh, Congress has delivered, you know, with the CARES Act and, and since then, has, um, is going to wind up very much accelerating the return to full employment. It's going to make a huge difference in people's lives, and it has already. 
as I mentioned in my remarks, opening remarks, the recovery has been faster than we expected. Part of that just is it very hard to predict, given we've never seen an event like this. But part of it is just the strength of the fiscal response, which I think will will look good over the years. Longer term, um, you know, to to really that's that the, the first part of it is is about avo- avoiding scarring, and I think we we've not avoided all of the scarring, but we've probably avoided the worst cases there. And and uh, I hope we keep at it, and we, we will keep at it with our policies, of course, to do whatever we can to make sure that's that continues. Longer term, though, um, what what it takes to drive productive capacity per capita or per hour worked to raise living standards over time is investment, investment in people's skills and aptitudes, investment in plant and equipment, investment in software. It takes a lot of investment to, uh, to, to support a more productive economy and raise living standards. And that's, you know, that hasn't been the, the principal focus with, with these measures our measures, certainly, and we don't have those tools, but what Congress has been doing has mainly been replacing lost income and beginning to, you know, support people as the economy returns to normal. But th- there should be a focus on, a longer-term focus, I think, would be healthy on, on, on the investment front. Talk about long-term <clears throat> investment and, and getting people's lives on track. This is uh, key to, like, areas, even in Oklahoma City, where we talk about the, um, Oh, uh, strawberry fields and projects like that, where we have federal and and uh, an investment um, opportunity zones where they can invest at lower tax and uh, you know lower tax rates and and those kind of things to be able to increase infrastructure. Uh, but I think also investing in in people's uh, mindsets, right? Like if you if you take off work to take care of your parents that are that have gotten diabetes and you stop going to school because you're going to stay home to take care of your parents, um, that will alter the trajectory of your income potential over the long uh, longevity of your life, potentially. So that's why when we talk about medical benefits and, and, and making decisions to have government funds take care of the elderly so that the young generation can then focus on growing their career that's why we're spending so much money towards because for a while i was just so frustrated at the whole medical and how we you know we seem to be just pumping welfare into the system and i think when we look at it from a stance of investing in all the people that don't have to give up their career to stay home with their parents and kids that are sick and these kind of things the the welfare dollars put in there are are gained back exponentially by allowing that person to actually have a a good career because they they weren't so that's i think what he's kind of talking about is that kind of investment in society thank you james politi james politi uh, thank you, uh, Chair Powell. Um, I wanted to ask a question about the Eurozone. Um, while the outlook for the U.S. economy has much improved, progress in the Eurozone has been far less encouraging, and it's showing signs of serious weakness due, due to um, the slower vaccination rollout and renewed um, lockdowns and restrictions. Um, how worried are you about transatlantic economic divergence um, and the possibility that um, that trouble in the Eurozone and weakness in the Eurozone could, could drag down uh, the US recovery as it did in a way um, in the aftermath of the financial crisis. 
you're right. The the pace of the recovery is um, we're having diverging um, recoveries here, as we did after the last crisis, and in this case, as well as the other one, the U.S.'s recovery is is leading the global recovery, um, and you know we conduct policy, of course, here. Our, our focus is on, con our, you know, our, our objectives are domestic ones. It's, it's maximum employment and price stability here in the United States. We monitor developments abroad and uh, we know that because they know, we know that they can, those can affect our outcomes. So I think U.S. demand, very strong U.S. Uh, demand if, if, uh, if, as the economy improves, is going to support global activity as well over time. Um, that, that'll be through imports and, you know, when the U.S. economy is strong, that strength tends to be, tends to support global, uh, global activity as well. So that's one thing. I don't, I don't worry in the near term. It, I mean, I'd love to see Europe growing faster. I'd love to see the vaccine uh, rollout going more smoothly. Uh, um, but I don't worry too much about us in the near term because we're, we're on a very good track, very strong fiscal support coming um, now vaccination going quickly and uh, cases coming down. I think we're I think we're in a good place. It's all ahead of us, but the data should should get stronger fairly quickly here and remain strong for some time here. Thank you, Hannah Lang. Hi, uh, thanks so much for taking our questions. Uh, I wanted to ask if the Fed is planning on extending the same restrictions on bank dividends and share I'm sorry, share purchases that are currently in place into the second quarter. And um, if you're considering at all the scenario analysis and uh, mid-cycle stress tests that were in place last year, this year, and kind of what would make you consider doing something like that again? So we haven't made a decision on that. We're a couple weeks away from announcing that decision. I, I, I won't foreshadow it here today. Um, I will say uh, we're going to continue our data-driven approach. You know that we restricted buybacks and dividends, so the firms are preserving capital. Through 2020, the banks uh, actually increased their level of capital and their level of reserves. Uh, and the December stress tests showed that banks are strong and well capitalized under our hypothetical recessions uh, that we that we used in December, which were quite stringent. We're right in the middle of our um, 2021 stress test, and we'll release those uh, results before the end of June. And that layers, you know, very significant additional stress uh, on top of the stress the banks have already absorbed over the past year, uh, with the unemployment rate going to 11 percent and stock prices falling more than 50 percent. So. But all of that, you know, the results of the stress test and the decision on, on distributions, all of that uh, is to come uh, fairly soon, as I mentioned. Thank you. Edward Lawrence. Thanks, Chair Paul, for uh, taking these questions. Um, you laid out the standards to lift off. And back in Ju June of 2020, you said, you know, you're not even thinking about thinking about raising rates. But I see seven members seeing liftoff in 2023 and four next year. How how much debate and how can you characterize that conversation has there been about moving off the lower bound earlier than signaled? Well, I, you know, it all depends. We've set out very clear criteria for liftoff, right, where we've said we want to see labor market conditions that are consistent with our estimates of of maximum employment. And that doesn't just mean unemployment, it means a much broader set of criteria. 
We want inflation at 2% and not on a transitory basis, and we want inflation on track to, to uh, be moderately, to run moderately above 2% for something. Those are the three conditions. Everybody on the committee agrees to that, right? So it comes down to what's your projection for the economy? If you want to, if you want to, you, you know, people will have a range of, of assessments for how good the economy is going to be. And, you know, we, we don't, I would say that we're in a relatively highly uncertain situation. If you look at the uncertainty, uh, uh, people, people on the committee broadly say that uncertainty about the forecast is, is very high compared to the normal level. We haven't come out of a pandemic before. We haven't had this kind of fiscal support before, it, totaling it all up. So you're going to have different perspectives from committee participants about how fast growth will be, how fast the labor market will hear, how fast uh, sorry, inflation will move up. And those things are going to dictate where people write down an estimate of liftoff. Of course, this isn't a decision to lift off now. We make that decision then. But it's an estimate based on, based on assumptions about growth. And it's, it's meant to be a tool to generally show the public how, how our, our objective function works, how we think about the future. It isn't meant to actually pin down a time when we might or might not lift off. We, we, you know, we're not going to make that decision for some time. The chances are that the economy in that time and place will be very different from the one we think it'll be. So I, um, sometimes with the dots, um, I have to be sure to, uh, to point out that they, they're not a committee forecast. You know this, but it's, they're not a committee forecast. It's just compiling these uh, projections, really, of individual people. We think it serves a useful purpose. It's not meant to, to actually be a promise or even a prediction of when the committee will act. That will be very much dependent on economic outcomes, which are highly uncertain. Thank you. We'll go to Brian Chung. Mr. Chairman Powell, I uh, wanted to elaborate a little bit on your commentary about the uh, fiscal stimulus. So it sounds like you, I guess, see the case for even maybe more investment, at least from Congress, uh, to support the more productive economy as you answered to Gina's question. So we just had $1.9 trillion in spending. So where do you see the fiscal space right now? Um, do you still, I guess, maybe see the, uh, the, the country in a place right now where it wouldn't be a concern if there were to be more spending at this time? No, so, Brian, it's not up to us to decide what, what Congress should spend money on or when. I was answering Gina's question, which really was, uh, how do we assure uh, lack of damage to if scarring, for example, or lack of damage to the productive capacity of the economy? And I think what's happened so far has done a pretty good job of that. But the, really, I wanted to make the longer run point that if to, to work on the productivity on productivity over longer periods, that is that that is comes down to a number of things. But one of those things is investment, investment in people, in their skills, education, aptitude, all of those things. I'm not in any way suggesting that that's something Congress should work on right now, or that you know that's just not my that's not our job. I'm just saying that that is what uh, what fiscal policy can do. Uh, that really monetary policy can't do is, is invest in the future productive capacity of the economy, raise potential growth. Those things are completely tools that Congress has. And again, I wasn't making a comment at all on the current fiscal uh, setting. Thank you. Next to Michael Derby. Uh, Great. Thank you for taking my question. I just wanted to get your an updated view on your uh, sense of uh, your your view on financial stability risks and whether or not you see any uh, 
pockets of excess out in financial markets that concern you either you know specifically to that that area of the market or as in terms of like the threat that it could propose to uh, propose to uh, the overall economy or so as you know uh, financial stability for us is is a framework. It's not one thing. It's not a particular market or a particular asset or anything like that. It's a framework that we we have. We report on it semi-annually. The board gets a report on it quarterly, uh, and we monitor every day. And it has it has four pillars, and those are four key vulnerabilities: asset valuations, debt owed by businesses and households, funding risk, and leverage among financial institutions. Those four things, and I'll just quickly touch on them. So, if you look at asset valuations. Um, you can say that by some measures, some asset valuations are elevated compared to history. I think that's clear. Uh, um, in terms of households and businesses, households entered the, the, the crisis in very good shape by historical standards. Uh, leverage in the household sector had been just kind of gradually moving down and down and down since the, since the financial crisis. Now, there was, uh, there was some negative effects on that. People lost their jobs and that sort of thing, but they've also gotten a lot of support, support now. So, uh, the damage hasn't been as, as bad as we, as we thought. Businesses, by the same token, had a high debt load coming in, uh, and, uh, uh, but, and many saw their revenues decline, but there's, they've done so much financing, and there's a lot of cash on their balance sheets, so nothing in those two sectors really jumps out as really troubling. Um, Short-term, I mentioned funding uh, risk as the, as the last one. So th we, we saw, again, in this crisis, breakdowns in parts of the short-term funding markets came under a tremendous amount of stress. Um, and they've been quiet since the spring and we, you know, we shut down our facilities and all that, but we, we don't, we don't feel like, uh, we can let the, um, let the moment pass without just saying again, that we, that those, some aspects of the short-term funding markets and more broadly non-bank financial intermediation didn't hold up so well under great stress, under tremendous stress. And we need to go back and look at that. So a very high priority for us as regulators and supervisors is going to be to go back. And this, this will involve all the other regulatory agencies. It does involve all of them as well. And see if we can strengthen those things. So that's, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a sort of a, a broader detailed look. Thank you. Michael McKee. Chairman, can you help me understand something about the, the SEP and your forecasts? Uh, the inflation that you're talking about for this year, say, is transitory. Then by 2023, you're back down to 2.1%. There's no uh, forecast for a rate increase for 2023. If you get to 3.5% unemployment, but inflation's only at 2 or 2.1%, are you willing to leave rates at zero? going forward from there or roughly zero going forward from there in other words could we be in a japan-like situation where rates just stay low because inflation does well again i wouldn't read too much into into the the march 2021 sep uh, dot plot um, remember what it is it's uh, a compilation of individual projections by individual members they're all making different assessments they, they have different forecasts uh, economic forecasts. Some have more optimistic ones, some less optimistic. Um, and also remember that the SEP doesn't actually include all the things that go into maximum employment, right? It's, it's, it's only, it only includes unemployment. So um, I, I would just say um, we've set out clear guidance. The, the message from the SEP 
that I would like to leave with people is we set out clear guidance. I mentioned what it was. It's um, inflation up to, no, sorry, it's, it's labor market conditions consistent with our estimates of maximum employment. And that's not just unemployment, it's all the other indicators. Uh, but overall totaling up to maximum employment. It's inflation at 2% and not on a transient basis, and inflation on track to exceed 2% for mo moderately for some time. Those are the criteria. We're committed to robustly implementing that guidance, and um, that's, what this, that's what this says. That's really all it says. Um, we're going to wait until those requirements are met. And, and again, uh, you know, the, the state of the economy in two or three years is is highly uncertain, and I wouldn't want to focus too much on the exact timing of a potential rate increase that far into the future. If I could follow up, I'm just wondering, uh, before 2019, shall we say, you were focused on the problems with having interest rates too low. Now, are you saying we're willing to live with it until we reach these goals, even if you get the, reach your goal on you know, maximum employment? So what I would say, I would is, say is we're committed to giving the economy the support that it needs to return as quickly as possible to a state of maximum employment and price stability. And, um, you know, to the extent having rates low and uh, support for monetary policy broadly, to the extent uh, that raises other questions, we think it's absolutely essential to maintain the strength and stability of the, of the broader financial system um, and to carefully monitor uh, financial stability questions, if that's what you're getting at. Um, you know, we, we do that. We, will, we monitor them very carefully. I, I would point out that over the long expansion, longest in U.S. history, 10 years and eight months, rates were very low for, for they were at zero for, you know, seven years and then, and then never got above, you know, two 2.4% roughly. During that, we didn't see actually excess buildup of debt. We didn't see asset prices form into bubbles that would threaten the progress of the economy. We didn't see the things you, we didn't see a housing bubble. You know, the things that have tended to really hurt an economy and, and have in recent history hurt the U.S., we didn't see them build up despite very low rates. Part of that just is that you're in a low rate environment. You're in a much lower rate environment, and the connection between low rates and the kind of financial instability issues is just not as tight as people think it is. That's not to say we ignore it. We don't ignore it. We, we watch it very carefully, and we don't think we think there is a connection. I uh, would say there is, but it's not quite so clear. Uh, we, we actually monitor financial conditions very, very broadly and carefully, and we didn't do that before the global financial crisis 12 years ago. Now we do. And we've also, you know, put a lot of time and effort into strengthening the large financial institutions that form the core of our financial system are much stronger, much more resilient. That's true of the banks. I think it's true of the CCPs. We want it to be true of, of other non-bank financial inter intermediation uh, markets and, and institutions. So I think that's, that, that's uh, you know, monetary policy should be, to me, the financial system so that it is strong and robust and can withstand the kinds of things that it couldn't, frankly. And we learned that in 2008, 9, 10. This time around, the regulated part of the uh, financial system held up very well. We, we found some other areas that, that need strengthening, and that's what we're working on now. There for today.
What a good answer to that question. Man, I would hire this guy in a heartbeat uh, to be on our uh, PR. Um, the guy is, uh, Jerome, is uh, what, a, what a character. Um, just full of information, uh, full of holding on to, here's what I said, and then they're asking in a hundred different ways to try to get him to say something different. And here's what I said. Here's what we're doing. And it's quite clear that until we see the result, which is inflation above 2% and, and unemployment below 4%, they're going to continue shelling out money. And again, because inflation is below 2%, um, it's not going to impact. And even if they were to change interest rates, like you said, they're the interest rate is is not as well connected as people think it is to the economic stability. And also, I think it's very important that he stated that things in 2008 were drastically different than they are now in what monetary policy looks at. They're much more broader scope. They have systems in place. And even the systems that they didn't have in place to prevent uh, something, you know, an economic indicator like COVID, they now are quickly adjusting to have. So that type of rhetoric, that type of process is really good signs for me as far as, you know, very, you know, being happy with America. <laughs> like, you know, we've got things together. So I appreciate you taking time out of your day to spend this with me listening to this. I hope you enjoyed that tape. I'm going to put a link to that video in the, the description below. So if you want to listen to it or scroll around or take sound bites, you can. To get a hold of me, visit the OKCRealEstateShow.com. There's articles, other things on there. There's also a link to be alerted for investment deals if you're an investor. If you are a residential home buyer and you're listening to this show, you can head over to OKCReal.com. That is my brokerage that I've created this year in January. I've been voted top agent by Zillow, uh, uh, HGTV. Uh, I was even featured on Sirius XM satellite radio. Um, and partly not, I mean, I just, I work and I talk about data and I listen to what people are saying and help them solve issues. And, and we really are able to come out with some pretty cool results. And that's, that's really what the success is about is about you and your goals and your family's future. So if you're buying residential or you have a friend that is, tell them about me, okcreal.com. You have a great day and I'll see you on next episode.